In this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. Just as I take a step over a log that I previously felled, something grabs the end of the chainsaw bar, rotates it in my hand, and just as I bring my left leg up, I kick the bar and my hand hits the trigger on the saw. One man accidentally becomes the poster boy for chainsaw chaps, and another man cures his chronic back pain in an unorthodox way. And they came and found me unconscious, suspended by my seatbelt and shoulder harnesses, bleeding from my forehead and gas dripping all over me. I'd been suffering from some back pain for about five years, and for the year following that wreck, I was pain-free. I figured I'd had the ultimate in chiropractic manipulation. Silver Linings, up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, I'm Rob Prince. Quick advanced warning to sensitive listeners, if you get squeamish when it comes to things like stitches, this may not be the Dark Winter Nights episode for you. It was 2019 and some friends and I were floating down the Chena River on a gorgeous summer day. One of my friends was demonstrating her ability to do a handstand on her stand-up paddleboard and... Not to be outdone, I decided to prove to everyone that I could do it too, in a hold my beer kind of moment. Except I'm a nerd, so instead of having someone hold my beer, I had them hold my glasses, and instead of them holding my glasses, they dropped them into the murky brown water of the Chena River. I immediately jumped into the shallow water and started frantically sweeping my legs and arms around, hoping to brush against my glasses before they were lost forever, but they were gone, and having now lost my kayak and sent our whole flotilla into disarray, I dejectedly waded to the shore, where I promptly tripped on some hidden object under the water and fell onto something sharp which cut two neat and deep parallel lines into my left knee about a half inch apart. About an hour later, I found myself shuffling into the ER, soaking wet, shoeless, blind, and bleeding from my knee. And that's how easy it is to hurt yourself in Alaska. In today's episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, we have stories from two other guys who managed to hurt themselves in novel ways up here in Alaska, but unlike me, both of these guys were able to find the silver linings to their unfortunate events. Our first tale of woe comes from Attilio Frizera, who shared his story at our April 2018 live event in Fairbanks. So in 2005, I am 19. Um, The previous couple of years, we've had some really bad fires here in the interior, and there are grants floating around for clearing defensible land around your home so that in the event that there is a wildfire, it doesn't bring your house down. So I'm going out, and I'm going to help my folks clear a bunch of land around their house, and my really good friend Pauline has decided to come with me. I'm renting a room from her, and uh, I may have leveraged that a little bit. So we're going out, and I grew up on a piece of land that is out at the end of state road maintenance. So that's not necessarily a long way by Alaska standards, but it's definitely not particularly close to anything else. So we go out, and um, you know, I've got my uh, I've got my chainsaw ready. It's a nice big steel 360. It's uh, the the entry level professional saw. Like if you're going to go cut some stuff down, this is where you start, especially if you're going to do a lot. So I've got my saw, I've got my nice helmet with the ear cups, and it's got this like great little face mask thing that has like nice mesh, so I'm not going to sweat in it. And, you know, I just go to. At this point in time, I've spent pretty much every summer of all of high school working for the local saw shop that sells chainsaws, so I'm pretty comfortable with one. I've done some fire science 
training stuff. I'm getting ready to get my red card. And so I go out there and, you know, I'm starting to fall stuff and Pauline's being a real champ. She's falling behind me. She's brushing out. She's like picking up spruce. She's doing all this stuff. I take out a whole bunch of black spruce. And, you know, I'm doing some, like a lot of little stuff in big clumps. And then uh, we've got this one tree and it's probably the largest tree on our property. It's this big, fat spruce tree. It's about 40 feet tall. And it's got like this like forked twin top and it's on kind of a weird hill. And so I'm just standing there looking at this thing like, I, I gotta figure out how to do this. So, you know, I, I do a little planning. I get my front cut in, I get my back cut in, and it just perfectly drops. And I am pumped. I have done it. I am ready to do more. I'm going to find everything. I'm going to cut down all of the tall trees. This is what I am doing now. <laughs> And so I'm just like pumped and I'm going and so I see my next target. It's this nice, you know, kind of like decent sized birch tree. It's, you know, within a hundred feet of the house. So it's gotta go. So I'm walking over and, you know, I take like one step, two steps and I'm just like really like already figuring out. I'm calculating my angles. I'm looking at my cuts. And just as I take a step over a log that I previously felled, Something grabs the end of the chainsaw bar, rotates it in my hand, and just as I bring my left leg up, I kick the bar and my hand hits the trigger on the saw. That's it, that's all it took. So at this exact moment, I just stop, I freeze. And then part of my brain turns on and I hit the handbrake for the, for the chain stop. And I know that there is no question, I have definitely just ruined these pants. <laughs> Nothing hurts, and I haven't fallen over, so these are both good. But I, I know I've got to look. Like, I know the pants are done, but I got to look. So I turn off the saw, and I like, kind of like, hold it out of the way and like, pick my leg up, and yep, pants are done. Like, I've managed to, like, not only did they, like, split kind of in the axis that the chain hit it, but it also just sent a rip straight down the front of my leg. So now I've got kind of like a half short. Yeah, the pants are done. And so I just lift my leg a little bit higher, and I see before me a three-inch long, literally half-inch wide just piece of my knee is gone. And so that's the thing about how a chainsaw works. So if you have a knife, you cut between two layers and you have two things that are now separate, but you can, if you have a very sharp knife, you just flop them back together and you can't tell. The way that a chainsaw works is it grabs some material and it throws it away. <laughs> so I look down. I look down and there's just this piece that is gone. It's not bleeding. It doesn't hurt. I actually can't feel anything at this point in time, which I'm very thankful for. And so I just, at this point in time, turn this off, set it down. I'm kind of trying to keep the legs straight. Pauline is standing about 20 feet behind me because she's been brushing and she sees this happen. And so she like kind of comes up and she's like, huh? And then she looks down at my knee and I get to watch her blanch. I'm like, okay, we should, we should go inside. Like we should just take care of this. And so she's just kind of like, She's already kind of rattled, right? Like she doesn't know exactly what we're gonna do with this. So I kind of peg leg my way back into the house and it's, you know, like of course we're like kind of out on one end of an acre of property and the house is on the other end. 
Um, and so we get in and uh, my mom is, you know, doing house stuff. It's the weekend. And she looks over and she says, oh, well, that, that was really quick because we had just been in for a couple minutes to like have like lemonade and cookies and hang out. Uh, and she turns around and just kind of blanches and gets a little pale because at some point in the walk from my incident site to the house, I have started to bleed. And so the front of my leg is just covered in blood. And so, you know, if there are three people who are probably actually fairly well equipped to deal with this situation, it was the three of us. Pauline and I had just finished our EMT basic certification program. We're both nationally certified emergency medical technicians. My mom had helped start some of the EMS services here. And so, you know, I, we get some gauze, we get some towels, I put pressure on it. And so I'm just sitting here and I kind of get to watch as I'm thinking about the fact that I'm either in shock or going into shock, I get to watch Pauline and my mom start to freak out. Oh my God, what should we do? Do we need to take him to the hospital? Do you need to go to the hospital? Maybe we can just take him to urgent care. What, what, what needs to happen now? What, where do we go? So because I have finished the EMT program and I have had just the right amount of head trauma, I'm just in there rooting around, right? I'm like, well, there, there are no bone chips. I don't see anything. That might be my kneecap, but it's not missing anything. And there's no muscle damage. So I think I probably just need stitches. And the two of them are like, okay, stitches. So like maybe urgent care? What? And I just kind of like retreat into the back of my brain for a moment. I'm like, I have a date with my girlfriend tonight. And I'm going to give her, I'm supposed to give her a ride. And I definitely cannot do that now. So I'm like, okay, give me the phone. And they're like, what? Give me the phone. Why do you want the phone? Because I need to make a phone call. So first I call urgent care. I'm like, hey, you guys do stitches, right? I've got one for you. They're like, yeah, we do, we do stitches. How late are you open? We're open. Okay. Second phone call. Call my girlfriend. Hey, hon, how's it going? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know how we were going to go do the thing tonight, um, and I was going to give you a ride? Could, could you find another ride? Well, I kind of winged myself with a chainsaw. You what yourself with a what? Winged myself with a chainsaw? Still have a leg. It's good. Just probably need stitches. This is, to the day, one of her favorite stories, and it's excellent to hear her side of it. So we get me loaded up into a vehicle, and we get me to urgent care. And, you know, I've got, you know, this big wad of stuff, kind of like ace bandage to my knee, and I'm kind of peg-legging along, I'm like leaning on Pauline. And the uh, check-in the, the check nurse is like, hi, you know, like, you look like you could use some help. And I'm like, well, I clipped myself with a chainsaw. I'm gonna go get the doctors, cool. So she comes back in a minute, and there are these two doctors, and they look weirdly giddy. <laughs> like, this is, this is the Tananaw Valley Clinic urgent care, and this is, like, literally the same summer that it opened. So these guys are like, chainsaw injury? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah, sir, um, please, come back. Let's, let's take you back to the examination room, and we can kind of unpack this and figure out what we want to do. And so we get back into the room, and you know the guy's looking at it, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that, there's a there's a chunk missing." So the two doctors are like, "Okay, we're we're going to talk strategy for a second. So they're over there, kind of on the side of the room, being like, "Oh man." It's just... 
Okay, so we're gonna try to just stitch it closed. Like, we don't wanna try staples. We're actually gonna do needle and thread. Um, it's gonna be hard because, you know, you don't have the two flap thing from a, you, gone. Okay. So they put 14 stitches across this fairly large chasm in my knee that has like a little extra defect thing in it because chainsaws aren't really a precision fine tool. Um, so I've got 14 stitches in my knee and the guy, is, the guy like wraps up because like the one guy is kind of like looking very studious and the other guy is very carefully like working the little fish hook and, and they finish and like, you know, they tie it off and they have this very excellent like, well done doctor, thank you doctor, well done moment. So one of the doctors turns to me and says, okay, here's the deal, Slim. Do not bend that leg for the next couple of weeks because you will pull those stitches out because they're under a lot of stress already. So, like I said, my summer job was to work for the local chainsaw shop. <laughs> and there's not a lot you can really do, just kind of like post it out like in a chair like, hey, how's it going? Thankfully, I could still perform my major task, which was sharpening chainsaw chain, which I'm thankfully very good at, otherwise I suspect that would have hurt a whole lot more. Um, but it also meant that I could just kind of stand up behind the counter a little bit more, kind of get into the sales side thing. So I, you know, like, got, got to do sales, which was kind of neat. Um, you know, somebody would come in, like, you know, either like a, a seasoned guy that we had seen in and out of the shop for the last couple of years, and, you know, somebody brand new, like, looking to get in, like, clear some land, do, do a favor for their family, you know, do the whole thing. I'm like, oh, hey, how you doing? Oh, you, you're looking for a saw. Okay, well, are you going to be filling big stuff? Are you going to be filling little stuff? Is this saw for you? Is it for a friend? Like, you know, how big do you want? Like, how much horsepower? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Safety gear? Yeah, no, no, I, I really like the, the bucket helmet with the face shield thing. There's just, there's just this like one little problem that if there's a teeny tiny little like sapling right there, you're not gonna see it, and that can be problematic. How about chaps? <laughs> Don't use them? Let me show you something. <laughs> I sold more chaps in the next three months. More chaps in the next three months than we had sold in three or four years. We ran out, we ordered more. I was going through them like mad. Like, oh yeah, buy a sack of chaps, buy, buy, buy two pair. You know, you, maybe, maybe you catch one, maybe you just don't. So there are a couple of happy epilogues to this story. The girlfriend who asked, I what myself with my what, uh, decided that despite that story, which she has never let me down, she would marry me. So good job. And now here's kind of the fun gross epilogue. So the next summer, I have unfinished business. There's still like another four acres of land that needs to be cleared. Thankfully, all of the big trees are down. So I'm out there with the sandvik and I'm just kind of like hacking down like little brush and taking out little saplings and you know, just like whacking stuff. And I kind of get over to where I'm at and I'm just reminiscing briefly. And I look over and I see this like one like medium-sized tree that must have missed like the first culling and it's got something on it. It's like a, it's like a caterpillar or maybe a slug. Do we even have slugs in interior Alaska? So I'm just fascinated, right? I'm like, man, what, what is this weird little critter? Yep. Nope. Nope. It's coming back to me. Grabs material, throws it away. That is a tiny piece of Attilio leather. <laughs> so the important story here is, 
Always wear your chaps. Yes. All right. Thank you. Attilio Frazera. He shared that story at our April 2018 live event in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, the Silver Linings episode. I'm Rob Prince. Hey, guess what? You're right. We've got another Dark Winter Nights live show coming up super quick. It will be Saturday, March 4th, 2023 at 7 o'clock p.m. in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. We'll have stories from Richard Dickman, Robin, Jen Jenkins, Jessica Thomas, and Fairbanks radio legend Glenner Anderson. More information and tickets can be found at darkwinternights.com. Carl Minetti's lifelong love with rugby began when he was a student in veterinary college, but as you can imagine, finding other rugby players in Fairbanks, Alaska was a little tough, especially back in the early 1980s. So Carl was always on the lookout for recruits, and by always, I mean always. He shared this story at our November 2022 live event in Fairbanks. Here's Carl. 1980-81, I was playing handball and swimming up at the university. That athletic club hadn't been opened yet. And um, the only thing that bothered me is they charged two or three bucks each time you used the facilities. You know, being the cheapskate that I am, I, I uh, figured I'd try to circumvent that. And I found out that if you're an alumnus of the school, you could get in to use the facilities for no charge. So I went looking for a, a, a course. I figured, you know, one class ought to do it. Uh, so so uh, I found a night school course for uh, flight school for pilots. I never uh, had any inclination to buy a plane, and I certainly didn't have the money to buy a plane. But I did fly with some friends, and I figured, what the heck, I might as well learn how to at least land a plane in case my pilot uh, conked out or bailed out on me. So, uh, so I enrolled in the class. That same, uh, that same winter, I had a number of clients who were dog mushers and uh, several of them who were Iditarod mushers. And uh, they, they, they uh, asked if I would maybe get onto the Iditarod race as a volunteer, as a veterinarian. So I did that, I signed up for that. I also, for the first time, got interested in the Iditarod raffle, largely because the, uh, the first prize for that year was to be a brand new Super Cub airplane, the ultimate bush plane. I was already, and I didn't know how to fly, but I was taking a course, so I said, what the heck? <laughs> I'm gonna buy a ticket. So the way, they, the way the raffle works is there's anywhere from, I don't know, 50 to 70 people that, that join the race to begin with. The mushers each get a bib at the starting line, and they wear it through the whole race. At the end of the race, the top 20 finishers are given a uh, cash prize, and attached to each of those cash prizes is a raffle prize. So the 20th place uh, raffle winner might get uh, five bags of dog food or something like that. And there's only 1,049 tickets that are sold. They're 100 bucks a piece, but there's only 1,049. So that's a pretty good odds to begin with. And at the banquet, let's say the 20th place musher was Joe Schmo, and he wore bib number, let's say he wore number six. So he reaches into the rotating bin there, and he pulls out six tickets. Out of those tickets, somebody from the audience comes out and picks the winner. That person gets the five, pound, five bags of dog food. All the tickets go back in. Then the 19th place musher picks out whatever bib number he or she wore. It might have been 35 or 50. That number of tickets comes out. The winner comes out of those 50. They all go back in the bin. So you have 
1,049 tickets, 100 bucks a piece, 20 chances to win. Good odds. So again, I determined to buy a ticket. The night of the banquet, actually the morning after, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I did get a call from Al Crane, a little bit tipsy, but uh, he said, you've just won the Super Cub airplane. <laughs> Woo. That's what I thought. <laughs> I was flabbergasted, amazed, and delighted. And I didn't even have a pilot's license. So, <clears throat> a couple weeks later, Al Crane flew that plane up, to, up from Anchorage to, uh, to North Pole. We put it at Bradley Sky Ranch until I could finish ground school, which happened about the end of April. And then I uh, enlisted my ground school instructor as my flight instructor. We, uh, we made our first, uh, our first flight together, and we did our walk around and, uh, and uh, weight and balance calculations and everything. We hop in the plane. Well, Super Cub, as most of you probably know, is a tail dragger. And it sits on the, on the ground. It sits like this with the prop up and the tail down. When you're in the pilot seat, it's tandem. The pilot sits in the front, uh, co-pilot or passenger sits in the back. When I was sitting in the front, I could barely see over the cowling to see the runway. Jack was five foot two. I was six foot eight. All he could see was me. Um, to this day, I, 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 couldn't, I can't tell if he was the craziest person I've ever met or the bravest for sitting back there and putting his life in the hands of a student pilot that had never flown before. Anyway, we taxied to the end of the runway and we turned down there facing into the wind and he says, okay, Carl, take off. I said, Jack. <laughs> You're supposed to teach me how to fly. <laughs> he said, I already taught you how to fly in ground school. Planes want to fly. You just keep her pointed down the runway, give it full throttle, and we will take off. And darned if he wasn't right. <laughs> Took about 1,000 feet or 1,200 feet to do it, but we flew. And it was just, what a feeling that for my, for my first time being a pilot. Anyway, for the next hour or so, we did probably eight or 10 full stop uh, landings and takeoffs. And then we flew out over the... Um, over the Tanana Flats to do some uh, steep turns and shallow turns and some stall practice. I need to tell you what a stall is in an airplane. It has nothing to do with your engine. Uh, when you're flying along in level flight, you're, the difference in, in airflow over the top of the wing and the bottom create lift that keeps you up in the air. Well, if you have too steep an attack toward the, toward the wind or toward the air, you lose that lift and you just plummet out of the sky. So uh, this is a really important thing to practice. And we did it at about 3,000 feet, so they had plenty of time to recover. Over the next few weeks, I had a few more flights with Jack, and he soloed me. And then a couple weeks later, uh, I had a flight test, and, and I got my license. And over the next uh, year and a half or so, I put on probably four or 500 hours on that plane. I went everywhere with it. I hunted, I fished, I sightseed, I... I did veterinary clinics out in uh, Tanana and uh, McGrath and Eagle and places like that. Bought winters, uh, bought skis for winter travel, and uh, oh, I, I even went to uh, Anchorage and Homer a couple times to play rugby. Remember rugby? There's a story about rugby. Um, July of 1982, a friend of mine asked me if I would take his girlfriend up to see the Midnight Sun. She had just flown in from France and wanted to really see the midnight sun, but it was too late to see anything from around here, so I agreed to do that. And she was living at, on a little cabin 
up off of Farmer's Loop Road, and I had flown over a small airstrip up there that I'd seen several planes parked around, and I, I'd never landed there, but I figured it was a safe place to land, so I, I decided to meet her there. So I, I met her there at 10 o'clock one evening, and it's a, one of these uphill, downhill runways. I landed at the bottom and packed, taxied to the top, turned around, she got in, and off we go. So we're going down the runway, and uh, uh, just, as I, just as I got airborne, I got sort of kicked off to the right of the runway, about 10 or 15 feet. There's no danger involved in it, but it sure got my attention. And I said, I'm not going to pay more attention when I come back here and, uh, and drop her off. So we flew around for a couple hours and up uh, north of uh, Fort Yukon, stopped in Fort Yukon, walked around, showed her a village, and, and we did see the midnight sun. And came back about 2 o'clock in the morning, still plenty of daylight and everything. She got on her bike and was ready to go back uh, to her cabin, and I turned the plane around to attack this runway one more time. Well, I started down the runway, and uh, I don't know how far down, maybe a third of the way down, maybe 150 feet or so. I found myself all of a sudden popped up into the air into what I immediately recognized was a stall. So Jack's training had... Uh, had uh, drilled in, uh, into us a couple of uh, really important things. You know, get the nose down, make sure you have full power and stuff like that. But there, he told us there were three or four physical forces that when you're in that kind of an attitude in an airplane, they make you turn to the left. Well, at 3,000 feet, when we were practicing them, it didn't make much difference if you ended up 20 feet to the left. But at 50 feet off the ground, it sure did. Because uh, I, I managed to recover from this stall and was just about to pat myself on the back for having done so when my left wingtip hit the windsock pole. I was about 20 feet to the left of where I should have been. That stopped my left wing, sped up my right wing, which gave it more lift, and I went into a steep arcing dive and augured straight into the ground. The, uh, my passenger had heard the, the wreck and uh, called the ambulance, and they came and found me unconscious, suspended by my seatbelt and shoulder harnesses, which I never go away from the curb anymore in my car without, um, bleeding from my forehead and gas dripping all over me. So they got me out and took me to the hospital. But the only good thing about it came, I got this real handsome scar on my forehead, a nice little Z, and improved my looks a hundredfold. And, um, you should have seen me before. It's terrible. <laughs> but, any, but the other thing was I'd been suffering from some back pain for about five years. And for a, the year following that wreck, I was pain-free. I figured I'd had the ultimate in chiropractic manipulation. <laughs> but I cannot recommend it as the first choice of treatment. Oh, rugby. Yeah. <sighs> Sorry. So I, I wake up in the hospital, and I'm looking up. I'm on the operating table. And I look up into the handsome face of this young emergency room physician. His name turned out to be Steve McCormick. He's suturing up my forehead. And he sees me open my eyes, and he says, uh, Hey, uh, buddy, how you feeling? <laughs> I feel like I've been in a plane wreck. I, I think I might have broke my arm and maybe a couple ribs. He said, No, your arm's not broken. And we took some x-rays of your ribs. We'll look at them a little bit later. It looks like you're going to be out of commission for a couple weeks. I said, yeah, that's the worst part. I said, uh, I won't be able to play rugby this weekend. He said, uh, there's a rugby team in Fairbanks? 
I said, yeah, do you play? He says, yeah, I played all through college and vets med school. I said, what position do you play? He said, I'm a lock. It's the same position I play. So I said, guess what? You're going to take my place on a rugby pitch tonight. And that is how you recruit a rugby player. I'm crippled and I'm old, but I'm still involved in the game, so I might try to recruit one of you guys. If you don't, be careful. Thank you very much. Carl Minetti. He shared that story at our November 2022 live event in Fairbanks. Thanks for listening to Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, the Silver Linings episode. Today's episode was edited by myself, Rob Prince. Story consultation by Lori Neufeld. Would you like to see Dark Winter Nights live and in person? Well, you do not have to wait long. Our next live show will be Saturday, March 4th, 2023 at 7 o'clock p.m. in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. More information and tickets can be found at darkwinternights.com. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince. <laughs>